Tonight we're going to be in Mark, and we're going to be in Mark chapter 14, verses 32 through 72. We have 40 verses. And as you flip there, I actually think it's important that we read every verse that we're going to be covering tonight. So I'm going to read. Uh, You can read along with me, and then we'll get into trying to unpack some of what's happening here. So again, uh, if you need the verses, we are in Mark chapter 14, verses 32 through 72. I'll start reading at verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with a crowd uh, with with, uh, swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given a sign, saying, The one I kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up at once and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew a sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out against us as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together, and Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none, for many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy the temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked, Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. And again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. 
what is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and, and, uh, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know or understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began to say to, to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and swear, I do not know the man of who you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed the second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. I thought it was important that we read all of those verses because the passage that we're about to try to unpack, I think, has some of the actual lowest points in all of the Bible. Now, we read the Bible, a lot of us, if we've read it before, knowing, a lot of us, the end and how this story actually ends with a triumphant resurrection. But imagine that you're one of Jesus' early followers, and you've been following around this Messiah who's doing all these miracles, and he's teaching you about this kingdom of God, and now it all begins to unravel. He's betrayed, he's beaten, he's lied on. And his disciples, the ones who are closest to him, clearly seem to be failing him. It's a low point. It's a dark point, and the darkness of this passage can be disorienting. The darkness here reminds me of a time that I got the opportunity to take a tour of a cave. If any one of you have driven through the Appalachian regions or anywhere around the mountains, you know that they have these tours where they'll take you down deep in the cave, and they have it all hollowed out and dug out so you can walk around and see the inside of the cave. It's pretty amazing. Uh, during the tour, though, it was towards the end, the guide asked us if we wanted to experience what's known as cave darkness. Now, because you're so deep underground in a cave, if they turn the lights off, because the whole thing is lit, actually not, not too dissimilar to what we have on the ceiling here, the whole thing's lit, but if they turn off all the lights, you're so far underground and you're so far away from the sun, your eyes and your brain are getting so few photons of light that it's, it's darker than anything we could experience up here. Now, the tour guide told us, look, if, if, we, if we do this, I can only turn the lights out for about three seconds because people actually can pass out, they can become sick because we're not ex meant to experience something that dark. And so I was like, yeah, let's do that. And we all agreed. The whole group was like, yeah, we want to we see this, or I guess not see this. <laughs> we want to be in the darkness, if you will. So the tour guy's like, all right, I'm going to turn the lights off. She's like, one, two, three. Turns the lights off, and the girl next to me has her phone out and takes a selfie while we're in cave darkness. And she totally ruined it, and I never got to experience cave darkness. And I was really upset, and uh, I struggled to forgive this person. But I do, because we must walk in forgiveness. And in a cave, right, this level of darkness is fine because they can turn the lights back on and we can all find our equilibrium and everything's good. But in this passage, there is so much darkness that if we don't find the light, if we don't find our equilibrium, it will be disorienting and it will be discouraging. And it certainly was discouraging for the people at the time. I think in this passage, we see the worst of humanity exposed. There's betrayal, there's selfishness, there's pride, there's lying. And then we just see the pure, finite nature of people. People get tired. They fall asleep at the worst possible time. But there is a light in this passage. There is a hope for humanity, and I don't want us to miss it. And the light here is not us just 
one day dying and going to heaven and having to look forward a few chapters to see what Jesus does, I think in this passage, Jesus begins to set the table for what it means for us to be lights in this world amongst the hopelessness and darkness that we see. But first, I think we have to deal with the hard stuff. So beginning this passage, Jesus is in a place called Gethsemane. Now, Gethsemane is an olive press where people from the town would come to crush olives and get the oil from them. And here, perhaps Jesus realizes the poetic nature of the moment. He's about to be crushed for our iniquities, which is why probably his beginning statements in this passage, he's describing the sorrow he's feeling almost to the point of death. Now, he asks his disciples to do a pretty simple thing, to keep watch and to pray. Now, remember, they had just got done taking the Last Supper together. They had just told Jesus that they'd never betray him. They're all zealous. And so you would think that they would be okay with this simple ask. So Jesus, uh, while he asked the disciples to watch and pray, he's suffering in this moment of sorrow to the point of death. What I first think we want to observe from Jesus is how he perfectly demonstrates what it means for us to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand in the midst of his suffering and in the midst of his being near death. His sorrow in this passage, I think, shows us what it means, like I said, to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. And he does that by holding on to two things, and you see it come out right in his prayer. First, he holds on to the idea of God's strength. He says, God, with you, all things are possible. He reminds himself, he strengthens himself in the Lord by reminding himself of God's strength. But then he also reminds himself of God's divine timing. Not my will or not my timing of events, but yours be done. And I think Jesus here, like I said, is giving us a good model for what it looks like to walk with God through pain and suffering. Pain and suffering with no idea or no reminder of God's strength can lead to hopelessness because it will make our circumstances seem as if they are ultimate when in fact they are not. But at the same time, if we go through pain and suffering with no knowledge or reminder of God's divine timing, that can lead to bitterness because it can make our circumstances seem seem pointless when in fact they are not. God has a purpose for all of our suffering. God certainly had a purpose for Jesus' suffering, and all of it is rooted in his glory. So here again, Jesus embraces both God's divine strength and God's divine timing. If you would use the more theological terms here, uh, Jesus is embracing God's divine sovereignty and God's divine providence. And that's how he's able to wrestle with his grief. Now, what's striking here is how Jesus transitions directly from this really deep, dark moment of him having to humble himself under God to avoid discouragement, and he transitions directly from that to seeing his disciples sleeping. It's a strong contrast, and imagine how you feel if you're at perhaps the hardest time in your life. You're suffering to the point of death. You can't even stand. You just have to get to your knees and pray and cry out to God. And then you ask your friends, hey, could you just pray for me for about an hour? I'm I'm in a really tough time right now. And then you come back and you find your friends sleeping. You'd probably be offended. I would. You'd probably be angry. You may be vindictive. But that's not what we see here from Jesus. He transitions directly from deep, dark, sorrowful pain and suffering directly to showing grace and mercy to his disciples. And he's able to make that transition because, again, I believe what we see here is Jesus trusting divinely in God's strength and in God's timing. Therefore, when people let him down or when he goes through trials, they only refine him and allow us to show his divinity, his perfectness, and they don't define or make him bend to the circumstance. Now here he shows his disciples grace, and I think uh, this first reminder to pray and to keep watch, he says it very clearly. You need to pray and you need to keep watch, not for my sake, but for yours. Even in his suffering, 
And in his sorrow, Jesus is looking out for his disciples. Now, this exchange happens three times. He comes back and he finds them asleep. He comes back, he finds them asleep. He comes back, he finds them asleep. Interestingly, at the end of this passage, Peter denies Jesus three times. Perhaps we're seeing some foreshadowing here. You know, I I said there's a lot of depravity. There's a lot of darkness in this passage. There's a lot of the worst of humanity. And depravity comes in many different forms, but a subtle form of depravity that we see in this passage, in this beginning part here with the exchange with them praying and sleeping, or not praying and sleeping, is apathy, right? The disciples are, they're sleeping on God. Literally, they're, they're sleeping when they're supposed to be keeping watch. And again, remember, this is right after Peter and all the disciples were saying, no, no, we'll never deny you. We took the Lord's Supper together. We sang a hymn. Like, we're, we're ready to, to, to see you through to the end. But Peter experienced and the disciples experienced what I think we all experience at points in life. The fun, the busyness, the activity wears off, and we're left to ourselves just a little bit, and we drift. We drift into tiredness. We drift into boredom. We drift into apathy when we're supposed to be watching, keeping active, keeping alert for our sake. Now, like I said, the disciples here, they're sleeping on God, literally. And I think if I were to try to translate this passage into our modern context, our beginning to drift from God might not just be sleeping, but if we were to see this passage happen in the year 2020, I think Jesus would come back and he'd see all the disciples on their phones, just looking away at stuff, looking up stuff, on social media, on email, texting people, on the phone. Because I think how many times that's us, right? We have a little bit of extra time, we've worked up in the morning, or we've got time where the house is quiet, we've got time to ourselves, and we drift. We get on the phone, we check social media, we start texting people. When we could be keeping watch for our souls, praying, getting into the Word, communing with God, doing things that will actively lead us closer to Him. Remember, Jesus said for the disciples' sake to keep watch. He wasn't saying that for His sake. He's trying to prepare them for the cataclysmic events that are about to come as he knew they would. But look where their failure starts. They're supposed to be praying, and they drift into tiredness, into apathy. Their drifting, like I said, was, was sleeping, and today uh, we have another factor that factors into us maybe drifting from God, and that's our technology, that's our phones, that's our constant ability to entertain ourselves. And I'll mention one more point here about drifting, and then we'll move on to talking about other uh, points in the passage. You know, I love football as much as the next guy, I probably love football more than all of you. I can tell you people that are on the Steelers practice squad. I can tell you who they signed in the offseason. Name any player on the roster. I can probably tell you where they went to college. Like, I really enjoy football. But at the same time, Sunday is the Lord's Day. And this is one of the days of the week where we can keep watch, where we can do things that actively draw us into the presence of God, to gather together with our brothers and sisters in Christ, to worship, to pray, to sing songs to the Lord. And how many of us feel that temptation to drift away from the Lord during football season or whatever your sport of preference is? We find an excuse to stay home because our game's on, our team's playing. We make a beeline right after church because the game's about to start. We don't want to miss it. Or we're on our phone during service. We're getting alerts. You know, your fantasy team is doing well. Someone just scored a touchdown. Remember, Jesus told the disciples to keep watch for their sake, not for his In our drifting, in our distraction, they don't take away from God's glory, but they may take us away from seeing the glory that God has around us every week when we gather together. 
Like we talked about in this, in this chapter, Peter starts and all the disciples say, we'll never deny Jesus. And then this chapter ends with Peter crying after he did exactly what he said he wouldn't do, which is deny Jesus three times. And I think we see his compromise begin to start here in Gethsemane. And this is an opportunity for us in 2020 to heed Peter's example. Most of our big compromises will start with a series of small compromises. I'll sleep in a little bit. I'll skip my Bible reading today. I won't call that person that I feel like God is pressing on my heart to call. I'll miss church. The game's on, or my favorite series is doing the finale. I want to watch it live. Small compromises that lead to a bigger compromise. Peter and the disciples started small, and we have the potential to do that too. But let us be encouraged that just as our small compromises happen, the disciples were compromising as well. But Jesus was patient with them, as he is with us. Three times he's patient hey, could you wake up? Could you pray? Could you keep watch at least for an hour? But then comes the betrayer. The events of Jesus are interrupted. And in this passage, we see the depravity of man only get darker, but Jesus and his actions and his response to man's depravity only get brighter. We go from men drifting from God to men just directly straight up betraying God. So Judah shows up on the scene and he says, the one I kiss that's the one who should be taken away and arrested. And he gives this affectionate greeting. He says, Rabbi, and he kisses him. And then Jesus is seized. Now here we see the disciples begin to take things in their own hands in a number of different ways, right? Judas uh, being the one to betray Jesus. But then we see one of the disciples cut off the ear of one of the high priests in in a means to perhaps defend Jesus or defend their ministry. Now Jesus seems unfazed, and I think it's because we saw at the beginning, he's accepted that this is the time for me to be crushed. This is my Gethsemane moment. I'm about to be crushed and poured out for the sins of people. Now in Luke's gospel, what's interesting is Jesus is even more uh, calm in his response. He heals the man's ear after the, servant, uh, after the servant's ear is cut off. And I think he's doing that because the scripture must be fulfilled, and he says that in other gospel accounts specifically, that the Messiah must be crushed. Now I said man's actions in this uh, passage as it matures only get darker and Jesus only shines brighter. Look here at his disciples and how they're responding to what's going on. These are the people that he was closest with, that he did ministry with, that he was with from a day-to-day basis. One's betrayed him. One of them has sliced someone's ear off and they all flee, fulfilling the prophecy. The shepherd is struck, the sheep flee. Now there's an interesting contrast here. The disciples who knew the Lord the most, who were closest to him, and followed him the most, are beginning to flee when things get heavy. But then we see a description of a boy who follows and who's seized by guards and who rips out of his cloak and runs away naked to get away from the action. Now, a number of scholars believe that the little boy here described in this passage is actually Mark, who is named the Gospel of Mark, right? The author of this book. So if you read the description, it's, it's, it's sort of a, a broad array of events that are being described, and then it gets very striking in its detail of there was this one boy there who had a cloak on and who had to run away naked to get away from the guards. So it seems like the person who would have described that either experienced it firsthand or was very close to experiencing it firsthand. Now, what we could compound this with is if you fast forward and look at Acts, Mark is named as a close companion of Peter, Peter who we're just reading about in this passage. And Peter is most likely dictating or telling Mark the events that happened, and Mark is taking this down as gospel account. Now, what's funny is that Peter's versions of events, as he's dictating this to Mark, and he's recording the gospel of Mark, Peter's version of events says, one of the disciples cut off the ear of the high priest. Now, if you read John 18, Peter is clearly identified as the one who cut off the ear of the high priest. 
So perhaps Peter was like, yeah, you know, it was somebody. And John's like, no, it was Peter. We know who did it. So we have this young boy here. We could presume and perhaps assume that it's Mark, but he's showing more courage to follow Jesus than his disciples did. His disciples run. This boy is sticking it out and has to run away naked to avoid perhaps being taken into uh, custody as well. Now, the scene only escalates from here. We see Peter following at a distance, and perhaps he's doing that because he's trying to salvage just a bit of his reputation. You know, I said I would never dishonor or, or uh, uh, leave the Lord, and he's pulling back a little bit, like, hey, this is, I don't know if this is for me. I don't know if I'm built for this. There's an interesting quote that I think kind of very well personifies the moment that's happening here. It's from a famous theologian named A.W. Tozer. A.W. Tozer, if you read his books, it's a lot of kind of punchy one-liners, and one of his one-liners is this, every man is as close to God as he wants to be. Now, some of us come from a a very reformed uh, Calvinist background and and perhaps struggle with that phrase a little bit. I'm going to clean it up at the end, but I think it's it's an apt description of what's happening right now. We're seeing people's will to follow God dwindle away, and every person in this moment is as close to God as they want to be. The scene continues to get uglier. The chief priests, the scribes, the teachers of the law, they uh, seem to always find themselves at odds with Jesus, if you've been following along in this series in Mark. Jesus is healing people in the midst of their services, in the midst of their presence. Jesus is uh, working on their Sabbath. Jesus is in their temple, flipping the tables over, driving out the money changers. And now, this is their opportunity to get that, that pesky guy who's been running awry in their religion. This is their chance to teach him a lesson. The tensions reach its height, and in fact, if you read in Mark 11, it says very flat out that they were plotting to kill Jesus. So this is the, 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 the culminax of, or the climax of, of a lot of probably tense interactions with Jesus that they're finally saying, all right, we got this guy pinned down. We got this punk who's been ruining all our services and all our religion, and now we're going to teach him a lesson. All they need to do now is get some charges to stick to him, get some form of, of, of way that they can convict him worthy of punishment or death, and that's how they'll get their revenge. But they can't get a cohesive story, right? They're, they're bearing false witness against Jesus. Some of them are saying that he would tear down the temple and build it again in three days. This is, uh, for them, uh, a, a almost terroristic threat. It's almost like saying, hey, I'm going to, because this temple is a real place, right? So it would be like me saying, I'm going to, you know, tear down Eastminster Presbyterian Church, a beautiful church right there on Penn, right? And then I'll build it again in three days. That would be very threatening. And so they're trying to figure out some way to get these charges to stick to Jesus, now, what's interesting here is that Jesus actually did say in John 2.19 that he was going to tear down the temple and build it again in three days, but he was referring to his body. And John makes that very clear in his gospel account. So even on this, on their accusations, they can't agree because they're lying. They're bearing false witness against Jesus. Now, a brief aside I'll make is this is happening all the time in our political process. Someone says something, and then someone takes their words out of context, maybe adds a few words here or there, and say, ah, this is what this person actually meant. That's called bearing false witness. That's called lying. And it's unfortunate to see that our political process has um, gotten to that point where that happens so frequently. It's almost seen as how you do politics. You take people's words and you twist them. The Bible says that's bearing false witness. That's lying. Now look here. This is clearly a sin. Look how Jesus responds to the bearing false witness against him, to the lying against him. He's silent. Everything that people in this passage intend for evil, Judas, the high priests, 
the teachers of the law, everything that is intended for evil, God can use for good. Some of you know that quote from the book, uh, or from Joseph's account, when his brothers sold him into slavery. And ultimately, we see that example here fulfilled in Jesus. Men in their wickedness are lying on him, are falsely accusing him. But what men intend for evil, God intends for good. And what we see bring about the salvation of many souls. That's why Jesus is quiet here, like a sheep before shears. Because he absolutely could defend himself. And in fact, if you read in Matthew's account, in Matthew 26, Jesus says that, you know, I could send legions of angels to defend me in this moment. But he's silent like a sheep before shears because he knows what has to happen. Now, important observation we have to make here about Jesus and about what's happening in this situation. Unfortunately, there are many people who have been killed unjustly. You think of lynching in the history, uh, the history of lynching in America or witch trials in New England. People just, you know, develop this false idea and, and find someone who's innocent and, and accuse them of something and kill them, hang them, crucify them. But Jesus is more than just an innocent person. So when Jesus is asked by the high priest, are you the Christ? Are you the son of the blessed one? Blessed one in a lot of your translations is probably capitalized. That's the high priest who was a religious leader using a respectful way of referring to God. Oftentimes in their culture, you couldn't refer to God directly out of respect for his name. So they would say synonyms like the blessed one. And that's why you see a lot of your translations, blessed one, capitalized. So this is another way of saying, are you the son of God? Are you this promised Messiah? And Jesus responds by saying, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power coming down with the clouds of heaven. Now, Jesus refers to himself in a couple different ways in his response. First, the phrase son of man. You'll see that a lot in the Gospels. Uh, Ezekiel, as well, uses the phrase son of man to refer to himself as a prophet. So some people would say, well, you know, Jesus is just saying he's another prophet or just another good teacher because Ezekiel also said that he's the son of man. However, we also have to look at the context of what Jesus meant when he said his full response because he also said there will be, you would see the son of man coming on the clouds with power. And again, notice power is capitalized. That's Jesus in a religious setting, also using a respectful way to refer to God, not referring to God directly, but saying a respectful synonym, power. Now, the imagery Jesus is using here is something that the religious leaders were probably familiar with. If you look in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 7, this is a, a, a book that would have been in the religious text that all of them are probably familiar with, talks about this son of man, which is the term Jesus used to refer to himself, but it says there's this son of man who rules over everything, who has dominion, who has a people that will serve him in a kingdom, and who has people that will submit to him. So Jesus clearly here is not just saying, I'm the Messiah. He's also saying, I've existed forever. I have a kingdom and people that will submit to me, which is why the reaction from the priest is so intense. This is blasphemy. This isn't just someone saying something false. This is someone blaspheming the name of God. He's claiming to be God. This is deserving of death according to the Jewish law. So you see the tearing of the robe. This is the sign of the finality of events. We have had our decision. We've come to our decision. What do you think should be done with him? How could you blaspheme the name of God by claiming to be God? And then we see Jesus taken away. This is where the pouring out of his life begins to progress. He's about to be crushed for our sake. And again, the depravity, here, the depravity here of this passage only continues. It starts with mockery. This is dark, and the darkness we experience and see here can be disorienting. Because Jesus just described his deity. 
in a way that perhaps is a little bit hard for us to understand, but in a way that everybody there who's religious, especially the high priest, the teacher of the law, would have understand. He just claimed to be God. He claimed to be one who's existed eternally, who has a kingdom, and who has nations and people that will submit to him forever. Those that were present, like I said, understood this. They know the reference that he's making. Now consider their boldness. This person just claimed to be God. This could be some crazy guy, or it could actually be one so holy that we can't use his name in direct form. This could be, uh, if I were to try to put this in our modern context, you're in the woods, you see a big pile covered in leaves. This could be uh, uh, leaves covering up a big mud pile, or this could be leaves covering up a grizzly bear. We don't know, so let's go jump on it. That's the recklessness they're displaying here. We're not sure. This could be one who's so holy that we can't even say his name, or it could just be some crazy guy. So we're going to beat him up and mock him and spit on him and all this stuff. They're pretty bold in their assumption that Jesus is not telling the truth. And the restraint Jesus shows in this moment is pure mercy. Because of my eternal plan, Jesus is probably thinking, I created all of you. If you knew who I was in this moment, you wouldn't even say my name. All of you would be on a knee right now. But yet, you're wrong. And in your wrongness, in your recklessness, your beating, your spitting, your mocking, and Jesus shows restraint, which I think, again, is pure mercy. Mercy being God's pardon of our sin. But it's not just mercy. I think this is also a display of Jesus' grace, God's power to live free from our sin. Because we have all experienced probably something to a much lesser degree, but something similar to what Jesus is experiencing in this passage. You've been lied on. You've been mocked. You've had people insult you. And when that happens, because you're made in the image of God, you're offended. How could you talk about me that way? How could you lie about me? That's not true. I'm someone who matters, and you can't just say whatever you want about me. So imagine how Jesus is feeling in this moment. Again, he exists eternally, has a a people and a kingdom that will be his eternally. They won't even use the name of God in direct form out of respect, but yet in their recklessness and their wrongness, they're beating up God and spitting on God and mocking God. And he allows the disrespect. So perhaps that's an exhortation for us to be graceful in those same moments when we experience disrespect. I really appreciate this quote from Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon is another theologian theologian who says a lot of really punchy things. And this is his, I think it's his commentary directly on this passage. He says this, How ready should we be to hear slander and ridicule for Jesus' sake? Do not get into a huff and think it a strange thing that people should mock you. Who are you, dear sir? Who are you? What can you be if compared with Christ? If they spat upon him, why should they not spit upon you? If they buffeted him, why should they not buffet you? Buffet means strike, hit. Shall your master have all the rough of it? Shall he have all the bitter and you all the sweet? A petty soldier you are to demand better fare than your captain. We certainly don't deserve less than our captain. And what this passage clearly illustrates so far is the many ways that people fail God, the many ways that we aren't worthy to walk in line with our captain. People are sleeping on God. People are betraying God. People are slandering God. People are mocking God and spitting upon God. And yet, in all this, he withholds his righteous anger from anyone. When he says in the other gospel account, I could send my angels right now to destroy everything. But he shows us mercy. And he also demonstrates grace for us. Now, there's no real happy ending to this chapter. We go back to Peter, 
and he's doing exactly what Jesus said he would do and exactly what he said he wouldn't do, which is disown Jesus. He's confronted by a servant girl, someone who could do uh, him no harm, someone who's weak, and he denies Jesus three times, calling down a curse on himself, meaning if I'm lying, which he was, but he's, you know, speaking boldly, if I'm lying, let me be accursed. And the rooster crows, and Peter weeps. It's a final scene in a dark chapter, a dark scene in a dark chapter, and the darkness of everything that's happening can be disorienting, like the cave darkness I almost experienced. But there is a light. There is a light. And I think even in this chapter, there is a light. There is hope. Earlier I said I would clean up the quote from A.W. Tozer, every man is as close to God as he wants to be. Peter is clearly showing in this moment, and so are the rest of the disciples, a very weak desire to be close to God. He starts by drifting and not praying when he should. Then he begins to kind of peel away and follow at a further distance. And then at the end, he just flat out denies knowing Jesus three times and fulfilling the prophecy. And he's broken over it. So where is the light in this passage? Where is the glimmer of hope? I thought it was important that we read all the verses because if you read through all this, you see how much darkness there is. And if you read too quickly, you'll miss the glimmer of hope. You'll miss the light. Jesus uses a short phrase in the beginning of our passage, and it's, it's a candle. It's a candle in a dark cave. Jesus says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. What we see happening here with Peter and with all the disciples is that their flesh is weak. No matter his bravado and no matter all their bravado and their zeal to say that they'll never deny Jesus, we all see they all fall away. But the good news is that there is a will to replace our flesh, which is weak. Every man is as close to God as he wants to be. Yeah, absolutely. But God offers us a new will and an empowering spirit to replace our weak will. We see this so closely in Peter's life after the resurrection. This is not a long time, and not a long lapse in time from the time that he just directly denied Jesus. If you read Acts, so Acts is actually combined with the book of Luke. So if you read kind of the, transpir- uh, the transpiring of events from the end of Luke to the beginning of Acts, you'll get from uh, betrayal, crucifixion, resurrection, and then right after that, we see Peter now being a leader in the early church. First chapter, second chapter of Acts, Acts chapter two. Peter's leading the disciples and the other followers of Jesus in a devotion to prayer. This was the same guy who was falling asleep on God with the rest of the disciples. We read in this account today how Peter, well, Peter didn't say in this account, but in the other gospel accounts, he was ratted out. One of the disciples, i.e. Peter, cut off the, the ear of the high priest. He was displaying man's anger, trying to take control of the situation for himself. But then I think we, we see a flip in Peter's demeanor and his character. And I like the account of the description of one of the first sermons he gives. It says the words he gave cut people to the heart. And they said, what should we do? And he calls them to repentance and to baptism, something we're praying for more of. So he goes from, in his anger, cutting off the ear of the high priest, to walking in the power of the Spirit, using words that cut people to the heart and get them to obey Jesus. Another example is, uh, we see really throughout the whole chapter, but even at the end, Peter comes out and flatly denies knowing Jesus. He's displaying cowardice. But if you read in Acts chapter 5, early church, Peter along with the other disciples, uh, are speaking boldly. Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. 
The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as a leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses. So he's not denying it anymore. We are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Peter went from denying Jesus to saying, I don't, know, I don't have anything to do with this guy, to shortly after saying, no, I'm with him. You guys crucified him, and he needs, you need to repent so he can send the Holy Spirit to all who are called to obey Jesus. He's rejoicing and being counted worthy to suffer danger and perhaps death for the sake of the name of Jesus. That same power that changed Peter is available to us today. We probably all have ways that we can identify with the weakness in this passage. We've denied Jesus. We've, we've pretended that we're not Christians. We've, we've not spoken up about God when we feel like the Spirit is prompting us to. Or we've gotten angry. We've lashed out and we've used words or perhaps even physical altercations in our anger. And we've done things that we know are displays of man's anger that doesn't bring about the righteousness of God. We've been lazy, right? We haven't read or prayed or, or pressed into God when we know we've had the opportunity. My question I have for us today is, does it occur to us that our battle against sin is more than just trying to think and do the right things? It's also walking in line with this new will, this new spirit that God gives us. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And this may seem counterintuitive. Imagine that if you were with Jesus physically, you got to be his disciple for three years. You learn your theology from Jesus. You learn your philosophy of ministry from Jesus. You learn about prayer from Jesus. You learn about helping the poor from Jesus. All the things you want to know to be a good Christian, you get to walk alongside and be with Jesus face-to-face, person-to-person. And then Jesus actually says, it's better for me to go away so that you can live according to the power that's actually going to help you be who you are in Christ. That's exactly what Jesus said. He said this to the disciples, John 16, 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, which is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go away, I will send him to you. We have access to this same power. That Jesus said, actually, it's better that I go away so that you can experience this helper, this comforter, this one who will help empower you to be the person who I created you to be. Jesus said, actually, that the Father gives good gifts, just as the Father gives good gifts to a son, how much more so will God give the Spirit to those who ask? So the first step, how do we walk in this power that God gives? We ask him for it. In those moments where we're feeling weak, where we're feeling tempted, where we're feeling like we don't want to be a Christian or we don't want to read our Bible or we don't want to be gracious with our spouse or our kids or our neighbors, we don't just try to do the right thing or think the right thing, but we actively ask God to fill us with his spirit. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Gethsemane was a place where people would go, as I said up front, to crush olives, and, and, and it was a, town, a place in town that Jesus and, would have known about. And we see in this passage how Jesus was crushed for our sake. And him being crushed, if you follow the analogy, olives are crushed, oil comes out, Him being crushed now gives us a new oil, an oil that said, that God said would be better actually that Jesus go away so that we can experience this power that Jesus gives to us. 
as we celebrate communion and as we think about remembering Jesus, it's easy to think about Jesus dying for our sins and paying the penalty for them. Amen. Hallelujah. That's absolutely something Jesus does for our sin. But as we celebrate communion today, and as we go about our actions this week, let's also remember the power that Jesus gave us to live the life that he's calling us to live. Now, those of us who may be here or watching online or hearing this message at some point in time, we all come to a realization where we realize the truth in this passage. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. All I mean when I say flesh is a representation for all of our actions, thoughts, ideas, efforts to please God. That's our flesh. And we all experience that it's weak. Everyone in this passage experienced their flesh is weak. They can't live according to the righteous standard that God calls for us. So what we all are invited to do, to walk by the power of the Spirit, is to do what's called repent. Turn from trusting in our, our good deeds, the things that we think we can do to make ourselves acceptable before God, and say, no, my flesh, my efforts, my striving to be good enough for God is weak. And ask him and cry out to him for a new will and a new spirit. Again, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Let's remember that as we celebrate and remember Jesus. I'll pray and then we'll sing a few worship songs. But thank you for the obedience of Jesus, for his perfect life and his perfect example, and him paying the penalty for our sins. We also thank you for the spirit which is poured out for us, which you said you would give to us generously if we ask you. In our weakness right now, in our weak efforts to know you, to follow you, to obey you this week, would you remind us of our need to cry out to you for more of the Holy Spirit and to walk according to that power and no power of our own? Lord, apart from you, we can do nothing. And would you teach us what it means to humble ourselves and to repent and to walk in poorness, poverty of spirit, God? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Remind us of that this week. That in our own striving and our own efforts, we can do nothing. But when we're abiding in you, when we're walking in you, we experience your strength. Remind us of Jesus as our perfect example. Remind us of his mercy, his grace, his patience with us. And let us not be discouraged for the many times that we've fallen short, for the many times that we've betrayed, lied on, slept on, done all the things that we know we shouldn't have done. Help us to remember the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And help us to turn from our sin and turn towards you in love. And help us to remember Jesus as we celebrate him. In his name, we ask these things. Amen.